0: Chapter twenty two of the log of a sea waif by Frank T. Bullen. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter twenty two prosperity palls upon me. As I grew better acquainted with the conditions of life on board the coasting steamers, I became extremely dissatisfied with my treatment on board the Helen MacGregor for while i had the usual duties of a lamp trimmer to attend to i was also compelled to work at all hours as one of the crew while the heavy weights i was ordered to handle were far beyond my strength and several times i was severely hurt so that at a fitting opportunity i left her taking up my abode with a shoemaker who had a large connection among steamer hands and for two or three weeks led the unprofitable life of a gentleman at large this was bad for me in many ways the company i was thrown amongst was doubtful i did not then know how much so and although i did not get involved in any of their shadier exploits i began to drink pretty heavily and to put it briefly go to the devil generally this career was fortunately put a stop to by the emptying of my purse which compelled me to get employment again my next ship was one of the finest on the coast the last new vessel of the australasian steam navigation company a s n fleet which was called the wentworth to my juvenile ideas she was a floating palace everything on board being on a grand scale as compared with the little helen MacGregor. the mate was a huge scotchman named wallace rough as a bear but very just and straightforward when he engaged me, he gave me to understand that my duties consisted solely in attending to the lamps and polishing the ornamental brasswork about the deck, and that I was on no account to do anything else or take orders from anybody but himself or the captain. This, added to the fact that my wages were now to be three pounds ten shillings a month, made me feel quite an important personage. In fact, I was almost too big for my boots.' everything on board was so excellent in quality and so well managed that i felt great pride in my ship and i determined that as i had only one master to please i would do all i could to succeed the first thing i resolved was that no ship in harbour should have such dazzling brass as mine and after i had polished it all i used to go round the other ships and look at theirs if there was one that i thought looked more brilliant than mine i would come back and go over my polishing again until i was satisfied and so i gradually got the reputation of being smart at brass cleaning anyhow i lived entirely alone in a little cubicle by my lamp-room which was a spacious apartment well fitted and quite sheltered from the weather being on the main deck in return for trimming the cook's lamps i received all my meals from the saloon messes and thus i lived better than i have ever done before or since not that the men fared indifferently the food supplied to them was of the best quality and as for quantity well they had steaks chops and potatoes with unlimited baker's bread for breakfast roast joints and potatoes for dinner and for supper the same as for breakfast the waste was shameful. The first two or three hands to arrive on the spot where they took their meals would cut all the brown off of a ten or twelve pound joint. When the laggards came along, if the appearance of the meat was not to their liking, which was usually the case, they would just fling it over the side and go to the galley for more. The cook dared not complain, as the officers always took the crew's part this partiality was owing to the system obtaining whereby a contractor ashore supplied all provisions at so much per head finding cooks and stewards himself and any suggestion upon the part of his servants that food was being wasted was always fiercely resented by every member of the crew who would immediately accuse them of trying to fatten their employer at the sailor's expense the result was that as much food was wasted each passage as would have supplied another ship of the same size those were the palmy days of australian coasters a b s received seven pounds per month and one shilling and sixpence per hour overtime when in harbour while the day consisted of eight hours only firemen got ten pounds and trimmers eight pounds per month with overtime in addition like the sailors and in justice to them it must be said that they seemed to value their privileges and did not behave in the senseless way that deep-water sailors usually do they spent a lot of money on dress and theatre-going, it is true, but many of them owned house property or land. Nor was their life a hard one. There was none of that tremendous drive and tear seen on the American coast where high wages are paid, as if the officers are determined to get the last ounce of energy out of every man because he was well paid. No take it all around it was the most comfortable sea-service that ever i saw or heard of and i never ceased to wonder at it or imagine that it was much too good to last from all reports that have reached me of late years my ideas on the latter point seem to have been well founded for i hear that neither pay nor conditions of service are in any degree comparable with what then obtained as for me i led a gentleman's life called at daylight to take in the lamps i was able to finish all my work before ten a m and from thenceforward i was my own master so heavily did the time hang when at sea that i took in washing from both sailors and firemen at the rate of three shillings and sixpence per dozen and thus earned a lot of extra money unfortunately i had no ideas of thrift and so although i must have been in receipt of at least thirty shillings weekly i never saved a penny my earnings used to leak away as if all my pockets were sieves but on the other hand the comfortable life abundance of good food and freedom from ill usage had such an effect upon my hitherto puny body that i began to look and feel as if i was capable of doing a good day's work and should therefore not now be ashamed to ask for employment i no longer felt like a sailor nor did the prospect of a return to the old life ever enter my head in fact i am afraid i never thought of the future at all my life was very pleasant and there was nobody in the world who cared a row of pins what became of me what more natural than that i should like any other pampered animal live contentedly in the present our usual trip was between sydney and melbourne and it generally occupied from eight to ten days anything more delightful than the ordinary run along the coast would be hard to imagine i got to know every landmark between the two ports as intimately as one knows the route between his work and his own street door but although i was always interested in the australian scenery i felt delighted to hear one trip that we were bound to auckland next voyage i had heard so much of new zealand that i had got to regard it as a sort of fairyland a group of islands of the blest we left sydney on christmas eve for our auckland trip much to the disgust of everybody on board except myself but as we carried the mails no delay could be allowed the next day we were of course out of sight of land steering straight across that stretch of the Pacific that lies between Australia and New Zealand. The sea was like a lake of glowing oil, and the sky a fleckless dome of deepest blue, with one mighty globe of molten gold hanging in its midst. Festivities began early, so early indeed that by dinner time some of the fellows were getting very frivolous. There was a gargantuan feat, of course, and after that well it was surely expecting too much of human nature to suppose that steam would or could be kept up as usual at any rate it wasn't it went down 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 until by four p m the propeller was just feebly revolving the vessel making no more than two knots at the outside by dusk i verily believe that the only two sober males on board were the captain and myself drunkenness reigned supreme in saloon stokehold and forecastle by and by the screw stopped altogether and we lay almost motionless a few of the more vigorous revellers made spasmodic efforts to keep it up but gradually the fun fizzled out and general sleep succeeded how long it lasted i don't know for i turned in as usual but in the morning she was going again though at no great speed it is true the only redeeming feature about the whole orgy was the absence of quarrelling general good-humour prevailed everywhere on board and not a word was said in recrimination after the resumption of work a day late we sighted the three kings those solitary rocks off the north point of new zealand that stand up so sternly out of the blue waste about them when we made them out it was in the tremulous lovely light of dawn beautiful beyond expression in those latitudes and their rugged outlines stood out sharply against the tenderly tinted sky through that lucent atmosphere like the shadows cast by an electric beam then as the sun sprang into the smiling heaven they were gilded and became like some fantastic ruin in black marble fringed with fiery rays and floating on a sea of many-coloured flame a few hours run brought us to the gulf of haraki up which we steamed amidst some of the most beautiful scenery in the world as we glided onward to where apparently a huge mountain completely blocked up the apex of the gulf a lovely island was pointed out to me on the starboard hand as the earthly paradise of sir george gray tiri, tiri here i was told it was his custom to receive troops of his maori friends and entertain them for days mingling with them without the slightest consciousness of any difference of rank or colour between him and them no wonder they loved him and will hand his memory down to their remotest descendants as the great white chief who loved them and justice Nearer and nearer we drew to Rangitoto, the frowning peak that loomed heavily right in our path. At last, when, within a very short distance of it, we made a sharp turn, and skirting a reef that extended some distance from its base, we presently opened up Auckland Harbour, which, if not so picturesque as its approaches might have let one to expect, had all the merits that a good harbour should have. Preeminently, the chief one of being safe with all winds. In a few minutes we were alongside the wharf, and besieged by an eager crowd who had been anxiously awaiting us as we were so much over our time. As was my constant habit, I began at once to inquire as to the fishing possibilities of the place, learning, to my intense delight, that the harbour literally swarmed with fish of all kinds, and that even from the wharf they could be caught in enormous quantities that settled my spare time occupation for me during our three visits to the city although our stay lasted a week each time i only went up town twice and then strictly on business my beloved sport claimed all my attention for some reason perhaps to avoid accidents the authorities did not permit fishing from the wharf in working hours so at daylight enthusiastic fishermen like myself would gather along its lee edge where the furious current boiled and bubbled around the piles and eagerly tried to jag a few of the tiny mackerel that clustered in shoals wherever there was an eddy as soon as one was caught he would be impaled on a large hook fastened to the end of a long stout line and cast out into the current without any other gear attached as the line slithered through one's fingers an eager watch was kept where the bait might be expected to be presently like a bar of silver a huge fish would leap into the air and it was pull for your life there was no finesse no sport in the angler's sense of the term but i doubt if any angler ever enjoyed his fishing more than i did this particular kind of fishing however always had to cease at six o'clock that is when work began at other times i fished on the bottom from the ship and was often at a serious loss to know what to do with the enormous numbers i caught but even then i did not realize how vast were the shoals of fish in the harbor until one day i took an oar in a boat conveying a pleasure party from our vessel down the bay when near the reef which fringed rangitoto mountain the numbers of kawai, a fish much like an overgrown mullet and averaging four or five pounds in weight were so great that each dip of the oar slew them until the water around us was reddened with their blood they were a fish of most delicate flavor and would have commanded a high price in any civilized fish market but the people of auckland seemed quite indifferent to the piscatorial advantages they enjoyed so, in this pleasant, easy-going fashion, the months passed away, until one day we left Sydney from Melbourne in the teeth of a southerly gale. It was hopeless to expect that we should make any progress, but I was told that because we had the mails on board, we were bound to show willing. We managed to get round the south head, and there we stuck the engines doggedly pounding away green seas coming over all passengers all seasick and we not gaining an inch against the fierce wind that roared up from its icy breeding place in the antarctic regions at last the governor carried away and all attempts to repair it were ineffectual this coupled with the fact that night was coming on determined our skipper to run back and anchor in watson's bay just behind the north head for shelter the word was given and she spun around as if rejoicing to be freed from the enormous strain she had been undergoing as we drew rapidly near the mouth of the harbour the sight was one of the grandest conceivable from the summit of the north head a gigantic cliff over four hundred feet high Fountains of spray shot up forty or fifty feet into the air, the incalculable pressure of those tremendous waves rolling up against it from their thousand-league journey, having forced the reluctant sea upwards through the interstices of that massive cliff to such a stupendous height. We flew in through the entrance, and immediately all was still. As we rounded to in the quiet little bay and dropped anchor, it was almost impossible to realize what a tormented waste of boiling sea we had just left, since here we lay perfectly motionless, without a ripple on the waters around. As it was dusk, I prepared the riding lamp, which is always suspended from the fore-rigging of a vessel, at anchor, but for some stupid reason of my own I did not place it in its position. Then I forgot all about it the captain was the first to discover its absence and blowing his whistle for the chief officer he reproved him sternly for his inattention to this important detail smarting at this the mate called me and asked why i had not put the light up i made some idiotic excuse telling him that it was already lighted and awaited his orders he was almost speechless with rage but controlled himself so far that he presently said calmly well go and hang it up i did so promptly and soon thought no more about it there was just this shade of excuse for me that i had never been anchored in a fairway before since i had been a lamp trimmer except up the clarence river and there the gangway lamp sufficed we resumed our voyage on the morrow and returned to sydney without incident worth remembering on the first morning after our arrival the mate called me and giving me the balance of my month's money discharged me not a word was said but i felt sure of the reason and did not feel sufficiently courageous to try and appease him nevertheless i was very sore for i knew that while i had had one of the best ships on the coast i had also done my work thoroughly well for over and over again the mate had commended me upon it I slunk ashore like a beaten dog, not caring what became of me, and returning to my old lodgings at the shoemaker's, set about spending my little stock of cash in reckless fashion. It did not last long, of course, and I was soon fain to look for a ship. But strange to say, I hadn't the heart to try for another berth as a lamp trimmer. It suddenly occurred to me that I would like to go home again. That is one of the most incomprehensible things imaginable to me— never during the first thirteen years of my life at sea did i have any home in england or one friendly face to welcome me back there yet however well i was treated in foreign countries or in the australasian colonies i always felt a longing to get back to my own country again and the sight of my homeland never failed to make a lump come in my throat and raise a feeling of wordless love for her in my breast why a homeless waif should thus love his native land i do not profess to understand but it is a solid fact and one that has to be reckoned with since i do not for a moment suppose that i am any different to the ordinary run of people in consequence of this strange longing to see the white cliffs of england once more i neglected the intercolonial steamers altogether and spent much of my time hanging about circular quay, watching the proceedings on board the splendid clipper ships that lay in that beautiful cove discharging their outward cargoes of merchandise or filling their capacious holds with the wool tin copper and meat of the colonies for transshipment to the mother country but owing to a diffidence that has always afflicted me i did not venture on board any of them to ask whether my services were required although i was now a sturdy youngster well able to do a day's work and looking like it one day as i was prowling round one of the outlying wharves i got into conversation with a burly londoner who was second mate of an old bark lying there apparently waiting for freight which was not forthcoming for any such out-of-date craft as she was this individual informed me that his ship was in want of two ordinary seamen and that if i would go to a certain hotel public-house in the vicinity i should find the skipper there and that he would probably engage me at once if i was willing this was by no means the kind of ship that i had proposed going home in but i was heartily weary of being ashore doing nothing my money was all gone so i turned my steps towards the skipper's haunt at once i found it without any difficulty indeed the place was fairly well known to me by sight and entering i inquired of a red-faced man who in his shirt-sleeves with unbuttoned vest was leaning over the bar from the inside smoking a churchwarden pipe if he could tell me where i might be likely to find captain bunker he turned a liquorish eye upon me and murmured between the puffs of smoke but might ye be wantin o him i'll tell him when i see him was my ready reply at which he removed his pipe and laughed most unmusically much to my annoyance as i did not feel like being made game of at last he said i'm captain bunker my lad what ye want of me for a moment i stared at him incredulously and then the conviction dawning on me that he was speaking the truth i told him my errand immediately he assumed a magisterial air and began to cross-examine me as to my qualifications etc my replies being satisfactory he then tried to cut me down in the wages but i held out for three pounds per month and strange to say succeeded in getting his consent to give it to me but not before he assured me that if i couldn't fulfil what he was pleased to call the duties of an ordinary seaman he would stop my pay altogether as in addition to my confidence in my own abilities i knew that he was talking nonsense i made no complaint about this and he drew me a glass of ale to clinch the bargain then he told me i might go on board and consider myself one of the crew and that he would sign me on with the other new hands in a day or two End of chapter twenty two